You're listening to a special episode of Friendly Connections, the official podcast of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. I'm Chase Maxwell. Today we are excited to share the first episode of the St. Paul Public Library's new podcast, live at SPPL, featuring author Brent Olson. Olson is the author of The Inadvertent Cafe, Lessons in Life, Business, and the Limited Value of Being a Do-Gooder, and other books on life in southwestern Minnesota, where he serves up wit and wisdom from the prairie and talks about life as a writer, farmer, and owner of a small-town cafe. Olson is a member of the American Agricultural Editors Association and the International Federation of Agricultural Journalists. His weekly column, Independently Speaking, is syndicated around the world. In 2012, he was awarded a Bush Foundation Fellowship. Olson's talk was recorded on Monday, December 5th, 2016 at Merriam Park Library. And now, Brent Olson. Yesterday morning, I broke my glasses. So either, and I have prescription sunglasses, but they're not bifocals. So I can, in fact, read. (laughs) I'm not dangerous to drive. But everything beyond about five feet from me is just sort of a misty glow at the moment. (laughs) So So if I appear to be completely ignoring someone who's waving their hand, I may, in fact, be ignoring you, but I may, in fact, just not be able to see you. (laughs) So heads up on that. When I first started as a writer, I had absolutely no credentials. But I thought, you know what? Really, a writer just needs two things. You need to be able to write, and you need to have something to say. Now, whether you can write or not, any editor should be able to tell in the first paragraph. So what I did is I developed a resume based upon whether I had anything to say or not. So the thing Mark read excerpts from was the uh, curriculum vitae I used to get my first book contract. That was nearly 20 years ago, so I've altered a little over the years. But as he said, when someone offers me help, my extensive response is to say, no thanks, I can do anything. And it has gotten me in a lot of trouble over the years, but I do in fact still say it. I did once shoot myself in the hand with a rifle while preparing for a Norwegian-Philippine-French Independence Day celebration. It's one of my best scars. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you want to know a funny story about that, okay? It was an actual surgeon who did the stitching, and he did a fantastic job, but I wasn't supposed to work for a couple weeks afterwards, and I did and I burst all the stitches, so it got sort of ragged and ugly looking. But I never told him (laughs) that that's what had happened. So every time I'd run into him after him, I'd go, oh, Romo, re-uglate, you know, and (laughs) and then he'd feel contrite. (laughs) One of my books was in Pete Seeger's bathroom. It is, in fact, he sent me a postcard saying that. It is, in fact, the proudest line on my resume. I did once take a group of other people's children to, uh, well, four times. We took kids to Jamaica. Your kid once. And it was purely sort of, by the way, just so you know, I've given a tremendous number of speeches in my life. You know what I've discovered? I really hate to give speeches, (laughs) okay? But I love talking to people. 
So if we could just sort of preserve the illusion that this is a conversation, except it's one in which I will make money, <laughs> that will be, <laughs> it'll be a lot more fun for me, certainly, and maybe for you as well. I was a junior high school Sunday school teacher, mainly because no one else would do it. And, uh, and the kids were a little browbeaten because they hadn't been able to find a Sunday school teacher, and they had committed no sin except for being, you know, 13 years old. So I would give them, like, inspirational talks every now and then. And I'd say, you know, if you try hard enough and plan carefully enough, you can do anything. And a kid in the front row named Eric Sleeter said, I want to go to Jamaica. <laughs> and I said, well, then we'll go to Jamaica. And I actually don't even think I mentioned it to my wife for a month because I thought they would forget about it, but they didn't. <laughs> and so we spent several years raising money. We would serve congregational dinners. The joke around the church was that the kids didn't know how to fry an egg, but they all knew the recipe for hot dish for 100 by heart. <laughs> <laughs> and we did go to Jamaica. And the first time we went, we were going to Kingston. Now, this was, this was nearly 20 years ago. It was a very low-budget operation. And I found out in my research that getting to Jamaica was incredibly cheap if you flew on a tourist charter. But the tourist charters landed only in Montego Bay. And Kingston is kitty corner across the country from Montego Bay. And it's about 120 miles or so. Now, I grew up at the base of the Red River Valley in Minnesota, where if something is 120 miles away, it's about a 120-minute drive. It's different in Jamaica, okay? But I had this plan that, you know, we would go along and, and I'd plotted out the road map and it, it all would work. And it did, sort of. Uh, we had a half dozen of other people's kids and my wife and our children, three, six, and nine, and my mother-in-law, who was along as a chaperone class slash babysitter, and off we went in a rented van. And the line on the resume comes where we were walking across a park. Actually, I'm talking about the, set, the, the third trip we stayed at Port Royal, which is across the harbor from Kingston. And there was this young woman named Lori, and we were walking through Kingston to go to some entertainment thing. And I'm thinking about Jamaica, you know, it's 98% black. I don't blend in at all, and none of us did. So we're walking across this park, and this guy came up to us and kind of lurched. He looked like he was impaired, drunk, or something. And he said something really sharply to this young woman who was with us. And she answered back in this Jamaican patois, which is lovely to hear, but I couldn't understand a word of it. And she answered back just as sharply. And he kind of did this, and then he walked off. And I was able to kind of suspend my curiosity for about a minute, minute and a half tops. And finally I said, Lori, what, what did you say to him? And he said, well, he said, what are you doing walking with these white people? And I said to him, and she put her arm around my wife, she said, I said to him because this is my mother. <laughs> and this is my father. And these are all my brothers and sisters. <laughs> and that was the first time I kind of realized in the, I'd sort of known it intellectually, but it's the first time I knew in the depths of my soul that uh, 
It's possible to get theological lessons from basically anyone, including 13-year-old girls on the streets of Kingston, Jamaica. It was a good learning experience for me. Another line is, I know all of Silver Tongue Devil by Chris Christopherson. I won't sing it for you tonight. Of the 10 most dangerous jobs in America, I've dabbled in six. I once harvested 235 acres of soybeans in 17 and a half hours. It snowed that night and I had three cups of coffee the next morning before I put on my shoes. I know that what Henry V probably said at Agincourt was let's get them boys, but Shakespeare's version always makes me cry. I can castrate 30 pound pigs by myself, 40 seconds per pig. I have an email on file from a person who drove 300 miles to have coffee with me and said that meeting me had been on his bucket list. And next to that, I have a letter from a person that reads in part, I've completely lost all respect for you as an elected official and as a human being. <laughs> I once drank all the whiskey with a world famous poet and told a story that my wife hates me to tell because she doesn't like people to know what I'm capable of. And when I was done, the poet laughed out loud and said, that's a poem. <laughs> Which is the line on my resume I like best next to the fact that my book was in Pete Seeger's bathroom. I've buried four dogs. I love my family. And I can cope. And that's what I used to get my first book contract. Book editors are a lot fussier now than they were 20 years ago. I just did a new query letter because one of the lines that Mark read is no longer valid because I had a minor tiff with one of the people who published my work. I have a syndicate column that goes to a bunch of different places. And as many magazines do, one of them is in some kind of financial difficulty. And they never paid me a lot of money but they would occasionally throw me a bone. Like they sent me to China to do a story once and they sent me to New Zealand to do a story. So I would begin cranky about not getting much money from them. And then they'd say, well, would you like to go to New Zealand and write a story about this and this? And then I'd like them again, you know? So <laughs> we got along that way for 20 years. But then I got a letter from them saying, you know, we've gone through our budgeting process and we love your work. We love what you do, but we're not gonna pay you anymore. <laughs> And I wrote a column about it because I thought it was sort of interesting. I mean, it was, you know, they, I don't get much of my money from them, so it wasn't a huge deal financially, but it was really a significant blow to your ego. And I wrote a column about what it feels like to be told that you're worth nothing, literally. And I kind of, you know, it wasn't all about me. I, I went on to talk about, you know, that's what, you know, if you're a coal miner in West Virginia or you made refrigerators in Indiana or you're a Syrian refugee or you're a peasant in one of 50 countries where your life really is of no value whatsoever. I mean, there's a lot of people in this world who are being told on a continuing basis that they're worth nothing. I thought it was really good. But the, <laughs> the guy got, the editor got really mad. And he sent me an email and he said, I told our content editor not to publish that column because what if people thought you were writing about us? 
And I said, I was. <laughs> and he says, well, I was thinking of sending you to Norway, but I'll have to mull that over for a while. <laughs> so I, I said, you know, you have to give me a reason to send my columns to you. He said, well, maybe I'll send you to Norway, but it's sort of the subtext is that I needed to straighten up and fly right. And I sent the content editor an email where I said, Anna, I'm not going to be sending you any columns again because the problem with writing a column called independently speaking <laughs> is that every now and then you have to mean it. <laughs> so if anyone wants to send me to Norway, <laughs> So I'm back, I'm back in the query letter business. I'd kind of turned 62 yesterday. So I was sort of coasting in the whole digging up people to pay me stuff thing. But now I'm back in that. And I wrote a new query letter that I'm sending out. I'll apologize in advance to my wife's Aunt Jean, who's here this evening, because there's bad language in this letter. So don't hold it against Robin, okay? <laughs> Dear whoever this goes to. I hope you read this letter. I could try to convince you that I'm important, except I'm not. I suppose I could try to explain that my opinions matter, but perhaps they don't. The biggest thing I have going for me in these partisan and divided times is that I am multilingual. I am fluent in both shit-kicker and sensitive religious left. <laughs> I can also converse easily in bubba and liberal bullshit. If F. Scott Fitzgerald was right when he said the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function, my ability to spend decades simultaneously inhabiting multiple worlds is a sign of someone able to act as an interpreter in a variety of directions. A favorite line I like to use in speeches is this, there's nothing more important than the truth. If you've seen the David, you've seen the truth. If you've read the last chapter of Moby Dick, you've read the truth. And you've heard the truth if you've ever heard David Allen Coe sing, if that ain't country, you can kiss my ass. <laughs> People always laugh at that line because they think I'm joking. But I'm not. I've been writing a syndicated column for over 20 years, read by people you don't know, and I've won a half dozen national awards from organizations you don't care about. I invite your attention to my work. <laughs> so those all just went out last week, so we'll, <laughs> we'll see if I get any responses. But the thing is, if I do get a response, it'll probably be from someone I want to work with, so there's that. Now, since this is, in fact, a conversation, if this has gone adrift from what you want to hear, just feel free to wave your hand, keeping in mind I might not be able to see it in the background. I'll do a little reading now. The article said I was going to talk about the craft of writing, and I'm willing to do that as well. We'll go whichever way you want to go with this. I have been doing this nearly 20 years, and I'm always sort of baffled by the concept of a reading, that I would go someplace <coughs> and read out loud to a bunch of adults who all know how to read. <laughs> I, mean <laughs> I mean, I like it. I mean, I enjoy it. I really do enjoy it, but really. It's a little messed up for a thing to do. <laughs> I mean, if I were Robert Bly, you know, and I'd be up here reading some erudite poem and explaining the derivation of it and the 
things like that, you know, okay, but not. This is the beginning of my book, The Inadvertent Cafe. It's 8.7 miles from my house to where I work. It takes me between 10 and 11 minutes unless my playlist lands on Pink Cadillac or Highway to Hell. That can knock about 30 seconds off the trip. I try to leave the house by 5.35 a.m. That's pretty early. I get dressed in the dark, socks in the top drawer, white on the left, black on the right, underwear in the second drawer, boxers on the left, t-shirts on the right. I check the headlines in three different newspapers and then I go out the door. There's a covered walkway from the house to the garage. Usually I get almost to my wife's car before the motion detector turns the garage lights on. Our giant Newfoundland sleeps on an old couch in the front of the garage, so I make a little race out of it to see if I can surprise her before she wakes up and comes to greet me. I always, in fact, lose. I prefer to see it not as a loss, but as my contribution to the dog's self-esteem. She's a rescue dog. She was purchased originally by someone to be a guard dog until she never stopped growing and wagged her tail at every intruder. I don't know if it were her pleasant demeanor or ginormous size that led to her discharge from the guard dog business, but be that as it may, she was kicked to the curb. Due to her early trauma, my wife has diagnosed her with reactive attachment disorder. I see her as just kind of a pain in the ass. <laughs> the commute is not always fun. In the winter, the heater doesn't start blowing warm air until about the time I pass the old Munnan place, two miles from my house. The family moved away 30 years ago. All the buildings have been gone for a decade or more, but it's still the easiest way to describe the intersection, at least to the locals. Two miles isn't very far, but it can seem like a long way when you're trying to hold your breath to avoid frosting up the windshield. During the spring and fall, I sometimes have to factor in a little extra time in case of traffic jams. One morning I had to slow down for three raccoons, four deer, and a family of skunks that was waddling casually down the middle of the road. It's tough to drive around a skunk family in the middle of the road. and. It's certainly nothing you want to do with your window down. Summer is the easiest commute. It's usually light out and seeing the moon set or the sunrise over the vast expanse of prairie is a sight that I've never grown tired of. Cal is often the first, that was a pause because I was going to tell a touching story about my wife, but my wife told me I couldn't talk about her tonight. So <laughs> you'll just have to assume that one was done. Cal is often the first one through the door. Some days it's Randy or a random truck driver, or a guy in the morning shift at the power plant, or in fact a librarian from St. Paul. <laughs> if it's Cal, we usually talk sports unless it's trapping season. If it's Randy, we talk about our kids. If it's someone else, we, talk, we start with the weather and then daintily shift towards politics if it seems possible there might be the ability to find some common ground. For the past few months, it's always been Lester. Lester is 88 and has a number of health issues but he comes to town every morning at 5.30 a.m. to walk a half mile on the treadmill next to the exercise center. I mean, on the treadmill at the exercise center next to the cafe. Then he comes next door to my place and has a cup of coffee while he waits for his pulse to settle back to normal. Not only is it almost always someone I know, 
but it's usually someone whose family has been friends with my family for three generations. There are exceptions. Phil, the new school superintendent, stops in early some mornings, but I don't know if he's in for the long haul or not. My country is a place where people often come to get the first line on their resume, and then they leave for some place where you can get a decent bagel. Yeah, bagels are important, you know? I mean, we have decent coffee out there now, but I've yet to master bagels, so. I try to come through the door at 5.45 a.m. That gives enough time for the grill to warm up and a pot of coffee to brew. It's easy in June and July when my eyes pop open with bird songs and sunlight. It feels foolish in January and February when the stars are still bright and cold and a hard wind swirls down an empty main street. Still, I have an overdeveloped sense of responsibility, and the sign says open at 6 a.m., and so, well, there I am. It's a strange place to find myself at age 60. My beard smells like bacon, and my hands smell like soap. It takes me about another 10, 12 pages to talk about how I got to this place, so we're not going to do that because you're close enough to the door, you could just slip right out. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just give you a brief summary. My father came to me and said, you've got to do something to keep Bonnie's open. Well, Bonnie's is our grocery store in this town of 453 people. And she's a really nice lady. And half the people in Clinton are too old to drive anymore. And if Bonnie's closes, then they have to live on convenience store food. So it's kind of a thing. At the same time, this cafe had closed, and a group of people were trying to get it open again. And I went in, and they were trying to bring the kitchen up to code, because it hadn't been up to code since, you know, 1926. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I said I would, I'd lay a tile floor, because it's something I know how to do. Well, it turned into a thing. I mean, I, uh, you know, I had to tear down a partition, and I had to lay a new subfloor. And at this point in my life, if I want to walk the next day, I can only work on my knees for about two, three hours. So I kind of pecked away at this for most of the winter and kind of mulling over, what could, what, what could you do here to help Bonnie stay open? So here was my plan. My plan was to open it up for breakfast, 6 to 10 a.m., just to cover the overhead. Then there would be a licensed commercial kitchen available for people who wanted to do value-added foods. I mean, as a, for instance, demographically, Big Stone County eats literally a ton of jam a year. And that jam all comes from someplace a long way away. So I was thinking, what if they could make it here? If I make it in my house, I could sell it to you. But I couldn't sell it to a grocery store to sell to you. That you need. For code, you need a licensed commercial kitchen to do that. So that was my plan. And I went to the Bush Foundation, and I told them my plan, and they gave me a Bush Foundation Leadership Fellowship for $75,000 to do this. So I kind of went, oh, crap. Because <laughs> <laughs> no. I had a pretty good life, you know? <laughs> And then, then it changed. So we finished bringing the kitchen up to code. And at some point, as I realized how expensive things were, for instance, it cost me $12,000 to hook up the stove hood. 
Now, not to buy the stovehood, to hook up the stovehood, cost $12,000. So at some point, I was going, I, I, told, I told my wife, I said, you know, the way I'm spending money, there's no way I can afford to hire someone, you know, to run this place. And then she said, and I quote, then, buddy, you better learn how to cook because I've got a job. So, Mark Bittman, the food editor from the New York Times, has a cookbook called How to Cook Everything. So I bought that, and, uh, <laughs> you know, this is all true, okay? <laughs> I bought that, and for, I don't know, about six months or so, I made all the meals at our house, except I only made breakfast, because that's all I needed to know. So my wife would come home from work and she'd say, what's for supper? And I'd say, I'm still having omelet issues. <laughs> and I'd sort of see the fear in her eyes, you know, but she hung in there with me. And then on March 3rd, just about four years ago, I, uh, I flipped the closed sign to open. And a half hour later, Dougie came through the door because he had seen that. Now, Dougie is our local carpenter, and he may well have written what will be on my tombstone, okay? Because we were working in our basement once, hanging some sheetrock. And I'm babbling away about something, because, you know, I read a lot, and, and all of a sudden I notice that I don't hear the sound of his screw gun. And he's a really good worker, so it's just, you know, it's and the sound was gone. And I turned and looked at him. And he was just sitting there looking at me. And then he says, Brent, you know more shit that don't matter than anyone I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, well, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I mean, can't argue with that. And that's how we got to where we are. It's a longer story, hence, you know, the actual <coughs> book. But what I found fascinating is that all the things I was learning about in this cafe, what I found fascinating is that working as a journalist, I've gone to 20 countries, I've filed stories from six different continents. And I just found it fascinating that the lessons I learned in the inadvertent cafe and the name from that comes from simply, because I lead kind of a complicated life, people would say, oh, Brent, what are you doing now? And I'd say, I'm inadvertently running a cafe. <laughs> the lessons I learn at the inadvertent cafe are just much like the ones I've learned in Uganda and Haiti and Jamaica and Peru and New Zealand and Argentina. And I think that's kind of cool to find out that everywhere you go, people are basically people. They do the same wonderful things. They say they do the same stupid things. And we all make the same mistakes no matter where we're from. And, and that's what the book is about. The book follows the cafe, but then it also segues into the different places I've been and, and the different things I've learned. They're calling it a memoir. I sort of saw it as a business advice book uh, <laughs> when I was writing it. Apparently, I'm the only one who saw it as that. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.
it won't be the first time that I've held an opinion myself that the rest of the world does not concur on. We've reached the Q&A with our audience at Miriam Park Library. For clarity, I've transcribed the questions and will read them before Olson's responses. Some have concluded that the 2016 election laid bare the differences between rural and urban America. Having lived in rural Minnesota for most of his life and having had countless conversations there, how would Olson reflect on these differences? That's part of where the query letter came from, to tell you the truth. Because one of my books was titled Letters from a Peasant. I mean, and I have, I don't have credentials as a writer, but I have sterling credentials as a peasant. I mean, one of our relatives went back to Norway and looked up the family records, and he went back 400 years, and you know what he found? Nothing. <laughs> just, <laughs> just a bunch of farmers, you know. You know, no noblemen, no rich princes, no wealthy merchants, no. Just a bunch of guys wearing comfortable shoes, growing stuff. The only thing on this earth that I am absolutely qualified to talk about is being a peasant. And my opinion is that Donald Trump may well be the worst possible president that I can ever imagine. But the issues he tapped into are real issues. The fact that I don't think he's the person who's going to solve them doesn't change the fact that it's real stuff. There is a deep fury among people who feel like they've been left behind. And it's not just, you know, old white guys in farm country. It, if you go out to Standing Rock, which isn't that far from where I live, they tapped into that same sort of fury. And if you go to, you know, this sacred valley of Oyotumbo in Peru, you know, where you know, they had these wonderful traditions and a culture that was trampled to dust under the feet of the Spaniards, you know. It's the same thing. And if you go to Uganda and you look at the residual effects of 400 years of colonialism, it's the same thing. There's a really deep, justified anger at the people in charge. Because it used to be that, and it may well have been a myth, okay, but it used to be a belief that the government was sort of the protection of regular people from the powerful. Nobody even pretends that's true anymore. I mean, the laws are written to justify the rich and the powerful, and everyone knows it now. And when we didn't know it, we were okay with it. You know, but now everyone knows that, and, and that's difficult. And of course, it doesn't help that a lot of the left-behindedness is the result of people's own choices. You know, you could have stayed in school. You know, you, 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 know, you could have gotten a second job instead of going ice fishing. You could have not gotten pregnant when you were 16. There's lots of things people could have done which would have altered the conditions they're in. But that just makes it more complicated. So, uh, so we're in for some interesting times. And, and I think politics worldwide kind of bears it out. If you see the results of the election, you know, the Brexit election, 
That was just, that was, no one was thinking about that. They were just, it was a purely visceral decision. And that, my wife and I were actually in Edinburgh the day the, that Scotland voted not to exit the United Kingdom. And that was sort of wonderful to see because, because in their heart, they all wanted to, you know? The Scots, they wanted to beat Scotland. But their head knew it was the wrong thing to do for them and their children and their grandchildren. And so they voted to stay. And it was really kind of wonderful to be a witness to that. But we're doing a lot of voting with our hearts and not our heads in a lot of different ways. That's my answer. Is Olson a proponent or practitioner of organic farming, and what are his views on the agricultural industry? I belong to something called the International Federation of Agricultural Journalists. Yeah, that's definitely a, that's definitely a niche, isn't it? <laughs> Every year they have their convention in a different country, okay? And this year I was in Germany, and I'd never been to Germany before. So that seemed like a perfectly valid reason to try and get someone to pay me to go there, which is how I do most of my traveling now. If I can get someone to pay me to go someplace. I've never been to Antarctica. <laughs> Just saying. <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really cool. Uh, the, these international federations, they're interesting because there's like 200 journalists from 40 different countries. So A, it's all people who are used to telling stories and people who know how to tell stories. So you get some great conversations. And you get to see things that you wouldn't see ordinarily if you were just, you know, a tourist. So we were in uh, a 40-acre greenhouse that was heated by waste heat from a power plant where they raise tomatoes 12 months of the year, okay? I mean, it was just, it was just like, you just look at it and you go, this is the most fantastic idea, this works. So much better than, you know, and they tasted like tomatoes and, <laughs> and they weren't shipped from Chile, you know, on a jet, you know, and, and stuff like that. And so yeah, I went to find out about that because I find it, I find it fascinating because, well, you know, there's a terrific book called Farmers for 40 Centuries, and it was written, oh, I don't know, 70, 80 years ago by some professor who had gone to China, okay? So they've had, he stretched that a little because there has not been agriculture for 40,000 years or 4,000 years. But if you go to Germany, you know, they, they have. I mean, there's evidence of farming that goes back just about 7,000 years. You know, when the Ice Age retreated, they were growing stuff. So you put that into context, and you look at the way we farm today, there's no way we're going to be able to do this the way we do it for another two, three, four thousand years. So that was the article I went to write, that we need to figure out a way. We can't think of sustainability as for the next 10 years. Think of sustainability for the next thousand years, and then you're kind of in the ballpark. And it kind of snaps your head into a different spot. 
when you look at it like that. So yes, that was the Germany thing. That's one of the things I learned there. One of the cool stories I learned there, we had dinner with this older German couple, okay? And they were kind of, you know, they were pleasant, and he told me that he had been a John Deere salesman, and, you know, da-da-da. And, and then the next morning, someone came up and said, oh, I, I, saw, I saw you had dinner with so-and-so. Did he tell you? Did he tell you? And I said, well, yeah, he told me he was a John Deere salesman. And they said, well, yeah, he was, he was in charge of John Deere India. <laughs> <laughs> and he's a count. And his wife is a duchess. And his father was executed for being part of the plot to kill Hitler. And during World War II, all of their lands were either confiscated by the Nazis or taken by the Russians. And it wasn't until, it, so when he was 12, he was on the street running from the oncoming Russian army. And after the East and West Germany were unified, he started doing lawsuits to regain his property. And now at the age of you know, 82, he's back living in the chateau where he was born. And I went, huh, that didn't come up. <laughs> 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 but I wish it would have. <laughs> when Olson was a seven-year-old boy, was there any glimmer of the man he would become? When did he know he would be a writer? No, I don't know. I love where I live, okay? I live in the house my great-grandparents built. Okay, my front yard is a 250-acre wetland that four generations of my family could have drained with a ditch. <laughs> and we didn't do it. If we would have done it, I'd have a lot more money than I have now, and I don't know why they chose not to do it, but I'm always profoundly grateful. But I have pictures of that view with the sun coming up over the water going back nearly 40 years, where I walk out of my door in the morning and I go, oh my God, that's beautiful. I need to take a picture of that. So I've got roughly a thousand identical pictures, you know. <laughs> So that's where I wanted to live. I had to figure out a way to make a living. Uh, and I farmed for a long time and I enjoyed it. I really liked it. I mean, I'm not a fan, I'm a competent farmer, okay? What I like to say is I'm a better writer than any farmer I've ever met and I'm a better farmer than every, any writer I ever <laughs> met. I find the key to self-esteem is to lower the bar far enough and <laughs> then you're okay. I started writing on a January just to see if I could do it. Just really. There, there's no more profound explanation than that. I wanted to see if people would pay me money for what I thought. And uh, as you read, as I, you heard from my resume, I, I, I mean, the first college level writing class I was ever in, I taught. I mean, I was giving a speech at a college and they asked me to, you know, do a thing with a writing class. So I don't think, you know, no, <laughs> I don't think anyone had any glimmer that this is what I would do. And this is, this is, I am being as nearly transparent as is possible for a human being to be. There's not, this is, this is just kind of me. <laughs> Can Olson characterize growing up in Big Stone County? What was it like? 
Well, I live in Big Stone County, which is almost in South Dakota. My great-grandparents came there in 1880. There had been fur traders and things like that back much earlier than that, but the Dakota conflict cleaned out all the Europeans. So it wasn't surveyed until I think 1877. And I've actually seen some of the original surveyors' notebooks. And at that time, when surveyors went out, they would do the demarcation of the land, but they'd also put down any notable landmarks they found. In that part of the country, they would put down trees. In Malta Township, where I was born, is 36 square miles, and there was not one tree, <laughs> literally. I mean, it was all prairie grass, four feet tall. My great-grandparents came from Norway. They spent the winter in Morris. And my great-grandfather got a job shoveling snow off railroad tracks because steam locomotives didn't have enough traction to get through big snowdrifts. So what they'd do is they'd hire, just like today, they hire the most recent person off the boat for the worst job. And they had hired the winner of 188. If you've read Laura Ingalls Wilder, that's the winner she was talking about, the winner of 1880. And so they hired people to shovel the snow, the snowdrifts off the railroad tracks so the trains could get through. So that's my heritage there. Growing up was, you know, it was kind of wonderful, I suppose. I mean, no one had any money, but no one felt poor because no one had any money. Anyway, there was a banker in town who had a daughter who dressed very well. So that was, that was sort of the thing. But it, it, it was a neighborhood. And just because it was rural, you know what I mean? Greenwich Village, there's neighborhoods in St. Paul. There's lots of places that are neighborhoods where you grew up and you didn't dare misbehave because everyone on the block knew you and knew who your parents were and, and things like that. I mean, there's nothing particularly intrinsically special about a rural upbringing. What's special is if you grow up in a neighborhood where there's people that care about you and, you know, and care about you in every sense of the word and that they'll get you in trouble if they think you need to be in trouble. One of the reasons I'm not a fan of Donald Trump is that he is everything I was raised to disrespect in a man. I, <laughs> I don't end and I was raised by men, and neither my father, nor either of my grandfathers, nor Wally Roseland, nor Symes Harrison, nor Bob Gustafson would spend five minutes in the same room with him. And I think maybe that's what we've lost. If as a society we've lost something, you don't become a man without being taught how to be one. And, and I was fortunate in that I had a lot of role models who did that. And I remember 20 years, our summers in that I did four years in the Marine Corps, which is still the single most surprising thing that's ever happened to me because he's not, he's not what you think of as a Marine. You know, he's not a big guy, he's not an aggressive guy. So the day the Marine Corps recruiter came to our house, I was as surprised as a human being could be. But he told me he wanted to, be, he wanted to do four years, he wanted to become a Marine Corps a Marine because he wanted to earn the right to vote. Now I know we have the right to vote, he wanted to earn the right to vote. I thought that was pretty cool from a 17 year old. But anyway, when he would come home on leave, he would check in with a few of these older men that he had known. They were kind of a touchstone in his life. 
And I think that's, that was maybe the best part of growing up in the neighborhood. And of course, I can't speak to being a woman. I mean, you know, but, but for me, being shown what a man was, was tremendously important to me in my upbringing. A large brother of my dad, a guy named Wally Roseland, used to come out and help my dad sometimes. And we had a neighbor up the road named Orrin Magadanch who had a heart attack. And Wally came out one day and said, yeah, Kurt, I'm going to take your tractor and go plow Orrin's land for him. And he didn't, it didn't occur to him to ask my dad if that would be okay. And it didn't occur to my dad to question whether he was going to bring the tractor back full of fuel or when he was going to do it or what, because that was what a man did. I don't think about that, I didn't think about that question until you asked it, and, I, and you may have noticed I was formulating my answer as I was talking. But that was the best thing about growing up out there, as it would be the best thing in any kind of neighborhood, is being shown what it's like to be a man, what it takes to be a man. En route home from the Twin Cities, what notable landmarks would Olson stop to look at along the way? What would he point out to visitors of Big Stone County? You know, there's damn little between there, here and there, but once you get to Big Stone County, baby, life is good. Well, we have lots of big stones. The Runestone isn't that far. The Runestone is just north of us a little bit. Sinclair Lewis grew up in Sox Center. Robert Bly grew up 20 miles from where I live. Bill Holm used to live there. In fact, I used to be on the Southwest Minnesota Art Council board, and they had their meetings in Marshall. And I would stop and see Bill on the way, and I had to quit doing that because I would show up in my meetings drunk. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he would, he, he would be done for the day when I'd stop in. You know, he was... He was a professor, so he'd, he'd be back at his house. It'd be 4.30, and he'd be done for the day, and I'd go in and say hello, and he'd say, well, let's have a bump, you know? And, and so we'd have a bump, and then he'd drag out some crackers, and then we'd have another bump, and, and there'd be half a dozen other people there, none of whom I knew, and... <laughs> so, yes, so I was about 70 miles from Minneota. Louise Erdrich, probably the best writer in Minnesota now, grew up in Wapaton, which is just north of us a little ways. So that's the literary things. We have Big Stone Lake, which is a terrific fishing lake. It's the start of the Minnesota River. Next year, the first weekend in October, you should all go out and do the Upper Minnesota River Meander, where they start in Granite Falls and go clear up to Ortonville and do like an artist tour, going to 30-some different artist studios, which is tremendous fun. So pencil that in. Is Olson's community experiencing population decline? How is its vitality? It's, it's stable now. In 1950, we had our peak. We had 10,000 people. Now we have a little over 5,000, but it's stabilized now, and we're having kind of a demographic blip, as the Minnesota State Demographer calls it because we have people in their 30s and 40s who are coming out there to raise their children, and we have to figure out a way to encourage them to stay once their children are raised. So that's one of my jobs as a commissioner is to figure that out. But it's not really a death spiral anymore, but it's, there's lots of jobs out there, but they're jobs that don't pay particularly well. And of course, services. I mean, I have to drive 60 miles to buy a shirt 
really. We recruited a physician once whose wife wouldn't come because it was 90 miles to a Walmart. So that's it. There's half as many people as there used to be, and, but we've stabilized. We're no longer falling off a cliff. Has Olson read much Walt Whitman, and does Whitman appear in his writing, or has he influenced Olson's writing? Walt Whitman is our greatest American poet. Or if he isn't, you know, you can make an argument that he's our greatest American poet, but no one will argue with you that he is our most American American yeah, poet. I've got a piece titled Me and Walt. I've got just a little over a thousand columns printed. So sometimes I forget what I've written. Okay, here we go. Now this is just my regular column, okay? It goes out to half a dozen farm magazines and, and things like that. So, it's called Me and Walt. How long has it been since we've talked about poetry? Really? That long? Well, let's go. All week long, I've had some lines from a poem stuck in my head. They come from Walt Whitman and read in part, this is not a book. Who touches this touches a man. I love that. If some poetry expert out there feels the need to write me a letter explaining the real meaning of those lines, don't bother, I won't listen. Because here's what I think they mean. I think old Walt is saying this was the best he could do. He opened himself up and told the truth as clearly and honestly as he could. I like that. Living where I live and doing what I do, most of the people I know do real stuff. Nurses and farmers, teachers and carpenters, whether you overhaul an engine or write a sonnet, the result is something you can't lie about, not even to yourself. The truth is out there. You're a competent workman or you are not. That's not always comforting. If you're going to try, every now and then you're going to fail. And honestly, without the danger of failure, what's the value in success? I've been struggling with that whole failure thing myself. I have a field of beans that looks just awful. I planted them when the soil was too wet about a month ago, when it was raining every other day, and I was afraid I was running out of chances to get them in the ground. The soil is heavy clay, and when it's worked too wet, you can end up with something that bears a remarkable resemblance to a concrete parking lot. That's what I did this year. Half the beans came up, but enormous swaths of them didn't. It's not something I can hide. <laughs> Luckily, the field is right next to my driveway and on a county road, so whenever I leave my house, I have a fresh reminder of how I screwed up, <laughs> as do all my neighbors who drive by. It's not the end of the world. We got some rain about a week ago, and the roads are starting to fill out, but it's ugly, and it's going to stay ugly all summer. And it's hard for me to look at because to paraphrase Walt, this is not a farm. Who sees this sees a man. I'm not shallow enough to think that the farm is all I am, but it certainly is a chunk of who I am. From the trees shading the driveway to the worn out hog equipment in a pile next to the shop, there are about 80 acres that all summer are going to be a profound embarrassment. A chapter I would prefer that people not read. But uncomfortable as it is, it is the truth, a small, ugly sliver of who I am. If you're going to choose to live a life doing something real, something that you are passionate about, whether it's planning a field, writing a sonnet, or teaching third grade, 
your work is going to be right out there. The truth of who you are is going to be available for all to judge. Of course, Walt's lines came toward the end of 487 pages of poems. It takes a while to tell the truth, to sing the song of your life. My bad field doesn't tell the whole truth about me. My children, the life I try to lead, and many other things contribute to the song that, for better or worse, is me. Walt knew that, and now I do too. Although those damn beans still bother me. And if, I don't know if any of you were there or not, but when Bill Holm died on, on his ca inside his casket, between his hands they had a copy of Leaves of Grass. Which makes me cry just thinking about it. We weren't buddies, okay? I mean, he was, he always treated me like an equal, even though we so clearly were not. And I just found that profoundly gratifying. Does Olson hang out with any other writers? Ah, they're all dead. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily for technology, I mean, one of my best friends as a writer is a female Muslim children's books writer who lives in Toronto, who I never would have met in my regular life, except my life is so much richer because I met her online. And that's something I like to, you know, when I teach writing classes and things like that. I mean, I hate technology as much as, much as any decent human being does, but it does open up the world for you if you choose. I mean, you can spend all your time communicating only with people you agree with, and we see a lot of that, but if you choose not to do that, it's a wonderful world out there. It really is, and there's, there's lots of opportunities to connect with people. My column last week, which I don't remember what it was about. What was it about? Do you remember? Anyway, I, I heard from her. And I heard from a female African-American Baptist preacher who runs a shelter for street prostitutes. And I heard from a cabinet maker who lives just south of Glacier National Park. And I heard from a poet in England, and all of, whom liked, all of them liked my columns last week. That's so cool. <laughs> I mean, that's so cool when, when you have that chance to uh, just momentarily connect with, with another kind of random soul. It's the best part of what I do. Can Olson provide a status update for the inadvertent cafe and the work he's trying to do to stimulate a stronger value-added economy in Clinton, Minnesota? How is Bonnie's grocery store doing? Leon just did 250 gallons of sauerkraut in the back room at the cafe. And he's selling his sauerkraut to Bonnie to sell in her restaurant. And Charlie just did almost 1,000 gallons of organic apple cider. And he too is selling it at Bonnie's. And so the people who buy the organic apple cider also, you know, pick up chicken and, you know, hamburger and stuff like that while they're there. So it might not be helping as much as I thought it would, but she's still in business, and so my dad isn't yelling at me about that. <laughs> so there's that. And that's why the Bush Foundation gave me the fellowship, because 
they don't care about Bonnie's, but what they care about is th if that's a model that works. Because the Bush Foundation mainly works in Minnesota and North Dakota and South Dakota. They work a tremendous amount with the tribes and in rural areas. And if that model works, there's a thousand small towns where there's a cafe or there's a church kitchen or there's a school kitchen where you could do basically the same thing. And uh, salsa. Salsa makes me nuts. All the salsa we get comes from a thousand miles away and every ingredient to make the best salsa in the world grows right here. That's nuts that we're shipping it clear across the country and there's so much stuff like that. Uh, there's so much like that, that it just requires <laughs> gumption <laughs> more than anything else. I don't know, I still think it's a good idea. If you'll read the book, you'll find that it was not a perfect idea. Part of it was my own personality because I got some people really angry at me. Because where I found that part of the things the Bush Foundation did is they had me take a bunch of personality profile tests and then pay someone $250 an hour to interpret them to me. <laughs> which my wife would have done for free, I think. <laughs> Could have saved everyone a lot of money. But I'm what, I'm an INFJ? Anyway, what it means is that I hate being in charge, yeah. but what I hate worse is seeing things done badly. <laughs> so you're always sort of taking charge and hating it. Uh, and I see, <laughs> I see heads nodding around the room. But whereas I think of myself as being remarkably easy to get along with, the truth is I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And sometimes, oddly enough, people find that annoying. And uh, this particular project, the fact that I occasionally am going to do what I'm going to do, got in the way of what I hope to accomplish. So, and that's one of the lessons I learned. Is so that it, it's, it's still a good model, and it does work someplace. It helps if you can find someone who will work for free. That's, that, seems, that seems to be the key, because there's a number of operations that started kind of about the same time I did that have tried to do similar things, and then they've fallen by the wayside. So yeah, the key to success is to find someone willing to work for free, which is, oddly enough, more difficult than some people think. But I still think, I think it's an idea that has merit. In 10 years, does Olson see himself still running the cafe? I'd be pretty old in 10 years. <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I, I, I can't see myself just shutting the door. If someone came out and said, yeah, I'll do this, I would give them the keys. I mean, I'd just hand it over to them. And I mean that literally. I mean, I'd just give them everything in the refrigerator and the change that's in the change bag and say, good luck, and I'll be in tomorrow for eggs over easy. But it would be really... On a personal level, it's good for me because I live inside my head so much. It's good for me to be out amongst actual people every now and then. So it, it's good for me to have that sort of human contact. It, it feeds me as a writer a little bit. Living the life I've led, I write much better <coughs> when I do something. I couldn't just... And uh, Richard Feynman, the guy who won the Nobel Prize for Physics, wrote a terrific book called Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman. And after World War II, 
Princeton, whatever is that called, the Center for Advanced Studies. Before World War II, they took Einstein and a few other prominent people, and they said, here, we'll give you, you can make a living, and just you just go out in a cabin in the wood and think great thoughts, okay? And it was a catastrophic failure. They didn't do any decent work at all. And Richard Feynman, even when he was working as a physicist, always insisted that he teach a couple physics classes, including an introduction to physics class, because he thought it made him a better physicist because it kind of kept his head in the game and kept him doing stuff. So for me, doing something physical kind of fixes everything. And I noticed that when I became a county commissioner, because that really destroyed my writing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it did. It, it, really, it, it, I, it, it, it really messed with my writing, because I didn't feel useful anymore. I didn't, I didn't see tangible results of what I was doing. And uh, I'm, you know, for better or worse, I, I need to see results to feel good about myself. Two weeks ago, I signed off on a $275 million budget that is balanced, which will keep 300 people employed and see 40,000 consumers gain health care on a board I'm on. And that morning, before that meeting, I made seven perfect omelets. <laughs> I actually really get more satisfaction from the omelets. I'm not saying it makes sense. You've been listening to Friendly Connections, the official podcast of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting the Friends and its mission, Stronger Libraries for Stronger Communities. Learn more at thefriends.org.